Due to the sensitive nature of today's material, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of sex, violence, and death. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Everyone is a fan of someone these days. Whether it's Taylor Swift, BTS, or Harry Styles, fandom promises big-time fun and big-time business. According to Billboard's website, it drove music devotees to spend over $132 billion in 2019. That doesn't even include the $300 billion spent in merchandise. And those are just the aspects we can quantify. Because every fan also dedicates countless hours to analyzing their favorite star's social media posts and following up on any third-party gossip. It's all in the name of devotion. Each detail offers another juicy morsel to bring fans one step closer to their favorite musicians. It may seem like a purely modern phenomenon, but it has deeper roots than you think. It all started in the 1960s with a British boy band. Yep, a boy band. Those existed back then, too. Only their fans became so obsessed, it may have pushed them to the dark side. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This is our first of three episodes in a special series on The Beatles. In the mid-1960s, Beatlemania swept the world as legions of fans worshipped the band, ultimately leading to obsessive, dark fixations. Today, we'll look at the Beatles' initial rise to fame, setting the stage for their rabid fandom. As the group struggled to stay together, their adoring public was more concerned about a dark conspiracy theory that Paul McCartney was actually dead and replaced with a lookalike. In the next two episodes, we'll dive into other prevalent Beatles theories by asking questions like, did Yoko Ono really break up the band? And was John Lennon assassinated by the U.S. government? We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. 
I know for me in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened. I'm okay. Other people have it worse. It doesn't matter much. And through therapy was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd started to see the world in ways that weren't great and were sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash conspiracy. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Nowadays, there are countless ways to express how much we love our favorite artists. In 2022, Taylor Swift devotees crashed Ticketmaster when trying to buy tickets for her tour. BTS fans keep the K-pop band trending on Twitter. After her wedding in 2021, Ariana Grande had the most liked Instagram photo ever on the platform at that time. But this expression of fandom wasn't always the norm. In the 1950s, long before social media and the internet, music looked a little bit different. Back then, the top musicians included people like Paul Anka, Harry Belafonte, and Connie Francis. They were all great artists, but none of them inspired the rabid fandom that prevails today. In fact, that kind of obsession didn't seem to exist much at all. When you think of the 1950s, you probably think of a house surrounded by a white picket fence. Inside, a demure stay-at-home mom prepared dinner for her husband and their teenage daughter, a young woman who was the exact replica of her mother, well-behaved, modestly dressed, and chaste. Journalists Barbara Ehrenreich, Elizabeth Hess, and Gloria Jacobs wrote in their book, Remaking Love, that during this time, girls were supposed to be pure, seen but not heard, judged harshly for expressing any sexual desires. And the boys? Well, they were allowed to be rowdy, promiscuous even, but that was destined to change. 
1956, one performer led to a sort of awakening in women of all ages. They screamed so loud at the concerts that no one could hear the music. They threw themselves onto the stage. Some women even fainted in the audience. No, we're not talking about the Beatles yet. We're talking about Elvis Presley. The hair, the voice, the moves, women lusted after him and expressed it with wild abandon at his shows. Gone was the good girl who was seen and not heard. Now she shrieked for more Elvis. The concept of fandom was taking its first nascent steps. Women didn't just want to nod their heads to the music, they wanted to scream and shout. Women were finally able to express themselves. Being an obsessive Elvis fan was a way to shake off the expectations of their gender. His performances proved the air was ripe for rebellion. Journalists Ehrenreich, Hess, and Jacobs analyzed the situation in their book, too. They wrote, this excitement was a form of, quote, protesting the sexual repressiveness, the rigid double standard of female teen culture. It was the first and most dramatic uprising of women's sexual revolution. A decade later, in the 1960s, this revolution reached a whole other level during the free love movement. Traditional religion, suppression, and monogamy were out. Spirituality, activism, and polyamory were in. Meanwhile, pop music was facing its own sort of insurgency, a British invasion of epic proportions. Ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles! On February 9th, 1964, the Beatles made their American TV debut on The Ed Sullivan Show. Much like Elvis, it was hard to hear the music over the young women screaming in the crowd. Unlike Elvis, it wasn't just one heartthrob on stage. There were four of them, each with nearly identical mop-top haircuts. In the middle, the affable and modest Ringo Starr played the drums with a smile. To the right, two men shared a mic. One was the quiet George Harrison on guitar. The other, strumming his own instrument and singing, was the witty and sarcastic John Lennon. Finally, to the left was the empathetic and charming Paul McCartney. All four British musicians were in their early 20s, and almost instantly after that performance, they became icons to teenage girls. But the enthusiasm wasn't confined to the TV studio. Typically, only 21 million viewers watched The Ed Sullivan Show. But the Beatles' appearance amassed 73 million American TV viewers at home, making it the most watched program at the time. Back then, cartoonist and author Carol Tyler was 13 years old, and she instantly fell in love with the band. In her Beatles-obsessed book, titled Fab Four Mania, she recalled the Sullivan appearance, leaving her in awe. She wrote, quote, the performance went by so quickly, and yet this white-hot heat inside me has not yet faded. 
Thousands of fans felt the same. John, Paul, Ringo, and George were no longer just young men on a stage. They were larger than life. They were the inspiration for a new movement called Beatlemania. Years later, journalist and professor Sibio Sullivan, once a teen Beatles fan herself, wrote a book about her experience called My Private Lennon. She recalled how young women would ask each other which band member was their favorite. In a sense, who they chose became part of their identity as a fan. Suddenly, new communities focused solely on the Beatles had formed. Fan magazines filled newsstands. Cartoonist Carol Tyler was amongst the many teens who created their own personal Beatles fan club. This intense enthusiasm for the band helped their singles Twist and Shout, I Want to Hold Your Hand, and Love Me Do top the Billboard charts. The band performed on The Ed Sullivan Show a few more times, then toured the world throughout the rest of 1964 and into 1966. At a lightning-fast pace, they released a staggering five albums in those three years, including Revolver and Rubber Soul. According to CNBC, they made over $25 million in 1964 alone. Fans reveled in the Beatlemania, hoping it would never end. But the Beatles were feeling the pressure of this worldwide fame. While making music was their lifelong dream, they hated being celebrities. According to author Mark Shapiro's biography of George Harrison, the Beatles complained when they got so big that no one even cared about their music anymore. Lennon once said, quote, I reckon we could send out four waxwork dummies of ourselves and that would satisfy the crowds. After all the success, the only thing they wanted was a break. And McCartney finally took one. According to the Beatles anthology, sometime in 1966, he visited friends in his hometown of Liverpool, England. It was probably nice to be back home after two years of nonstop performing. He and a few buddies went mopeding one night, perhaps for old time's sake. They drove around, marveling at the city's scenery under the full moon. Distracted by the sky, McCartney wasn't paying attention to the road. He fell off the moped and landed face down on the pavement. The accident could have been a disaster, but luckily for McCartney and his adoring fan base, he only chipped a tooth and split his lip. His friends called a doctor to come and stitch McCartney up, but the wound left a scar. McCartney worried what teenage fans might think when they looked at his new photos, so he grew a mustache to cover it up. It was unclear what fans thought about his accident or if they worried about him after the fact. But we do know the facial hair had an impact, particularly on his bandmates. They all followed his lead by growing their own mustaches. And with this new self-expression came a whole new era for the Beatles. In September 1966, the band finished its final scheduled tour date and took a break. The Beatles went their separate ways for a few weeks, then reunited in October. They seemed to unofficially agree, 
they'd stop touring altogether and focus more on recording music. The fans would just have to accept that. But without concerts to scream and shout at, some devotees found darker ways to convey their fandom. Up next, fans take Paul McCartney's well-being to the extreme. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Now, back to the story. In the autumn of 1966, the Beatles stopped performing live so they could return to their first love, making music. The band wanted their eighth studio album to sound different. They wanted it to be experimental, psychedelic even. It was based on an idea Paul McCartney had. He wanted to record an album pretending to be another band who was performing on stage. In a sense, it would give their fans the live concert experience without having to leave the studio. McCartney called the pretend group and the album Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. It was unlike anything they'd done before. It was unlike anything anyone had done before. The band felt it had the potential to be their greatest masterpiece, they disappeared into the studio to record the LP for several months. But it left their adoring fans without an opportunity to see their favorite Fab Four. There were no more tour dates or concerts to express their love for the Beatles. And if they couldn't go to live performances, how else were they supposed to engage with their favorite celebrities? This lack of interface may have turned to fear for some fans. A few started to theorize about what was going on with the Beatles now that they were behind closed doors. Were they all right? Were they going to break up? Rumors circulated about all of those things, but one of them took an even weirder, more obsessive turn. People started to wonder if Paul McCartney was even still alive. We don't know how this conspiracy theory formed exactly, but some say it began on a cold, icy day in the United Kingdom. Sources differed on when exactly it was. Some claim November 9th, 1966, while others say January 7th, 1967. Either way, it seemed to manifest on the M1 motorway, a main highway in the English countryside leading to London. 
At the time, the thoroughfare had a reputation for being extremely dangerous. According to UK Parliament records, the road had dense traffic, but it lacked crash barriers, enforced speed limits, and lights. In inclement weather, this was a recipe for disaster. During this particular storm, an errant car apparently skidded off the road and crashed into a pole. The driver of the vehicle supposedly died. We can't say for sure that this wreck actually even happened. But believers in this conspiracy theory pointed to the story as evidence, and they insisted the driver of the vehicle was Paul McCartney. Even I'll admit, this is very little information to form a conspiracy theory off of. Which is why it's shocking the rumor ever got so big in the first place. According to Rolling Stone magazine, many fans bought into this narrative that Paul McCartney had died that night in the crash. A tragedy that surely would have presented the remaining Beatles with a serious dilemma. The band had achieved massive success as a foursome. As this theory went, if it got out that one of their main songwriters and most popular members were gone, it could sink the Beatles for good. Without any touring income, they needed to keep the cash flowing in other ways. So the band would have had to complete their album, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. They also would have had to finish filming their $2 million movie that was in production. So, conspiracy theorists believed Lennon, Starr, and Harrison came up with the following plan. They covered up McCartney's alleged death and replaced him with a lookalike. By this point, they had already stopped performing live, so fans probably wouldn't see or notice the difference in person. If they did another concert, Lennon did say he believed fans would be fine if they replaced themselves with wax figures. Was this any different? Believers in this theory called the alleged imposter Fall, a portmanteau of fake Paul. As for this rumor's origins, Professors Ralph L. Rosnow and Gary Allen Fine tried to track down the starting point in their book, Rumor and Gossip, The Social Psychology of Hearsay. The professors suspected it may have begun at Eastern Michigan State University, where someone started the speculation and word spread to the Beatles fans in the area. The theory eventually circulated beyond Michigan and to the rest of the world. But why? It's hard to say. USC professor Henry Jenkins' book, Textual Poachers, explained that when fans have an intense interest in something, it can cause their imagination to run wild. The band's devotees may have also latched onto it because they were worried about McCartney after his moped accident, but we may never know for sure. One reason why it's hard to trace this theory is because most scholarly sources dismissed it right away. For instance, Professor Richard Mill's book, 
The Beatles and fandom called it a whimsical and pernicious story made up by fans. But at the time, no one cared about the origins of the theory. The speculation still grew. In January 1966, Vermont's Rutland Daily Herald editors wrote a short article about how teens called the newsroom asking if McCartney was still alive. In the days before the internet, it wasn't unusual for all kinds of publications to get hounded with questions from local fans. But at the piece's conclusion, the writer assured Beatles fans that the heartthrob was still alive. Which still wasn't enough. Apparently, the rumor gained so much steam that in some circles, fans believed that McCartney allegedly got decapitated in the accident. It was a gruesome addition to the already morbid speculation. But the band seemed to play into the rumors in 1966. That year, according to the Beatles anthology, they talked about their album cover for Yesterday and Today. It showed the four members dressed in white coats surrounded by baby dolls. One of those dolls was without a head. John Lennon was quoted as saying, My original idea for the cover was better. Decapitate Paul. But he wouldn't go along with it. By that quote, fans felt the band knew about the rumor, but it still wasn't entirely clear. It gained enough traction that in February 1967, a Beatles fan magazine called The Beatles Monthly Book addressed it in a small blurb, but they also called it a false rumor. Obviously, Paul wasn't dead. The piece concluded by saying the band's PR rep called McCartney after the alleged M1 motorway accident. Not only was he alive, he hadn't even left his London home on the day of the supposed crash. That didn't seem to put an end to the rumor either, though. Many fans still bought into the idea that the current McCartney was an imposter, and they looked for clues everywhere, including the next Beatles album. Three months later, on May 26, 1967, the band released their album, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. It became a landmark work in psychedelic rock as hippie culture reached the mainstream. Not to mention, it was massively successful. Sgt. Pepper was the number one record on the Billboard 200 chart for 15 weeks. According to the UK official charts, it reportedly sold 32 million copies worldwide. Superfans, like college student Sibby O'Sullivan, listened to the album very closely. In her book, My Private Lennon, she said, I loved the album and knew it was important because its songs didn't invite you to dance, but to listen. I gave it my full attention. She pointed out that Sgt. Pepper was the first Beatles album to include its lyrics in the record sleeve. As the album played, she lied on the floor listening and reading the lyrics, wondering what the poetic words meant, as did thousands of other Beatles fans. As we mentioned before, 
USC professor Henry Jenkins' book, Textual Poachers, explained that a fan's intense interest in something can make their imaginations run wild. He wrote, this can also prompt them to see supposed clues in already existing texts. And fans saw a whole litany of secret messages in that album. The record began with the murmur of a crowd, then went into the first chords of the track, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. McCartney primarily sang the song's vocals, and at the end, he introduced the listeners to a man named Billy Shears. Conspiracy theorists immediately thought that reference was odd. Who was Billy Shears? And why would he suddenly need an introduction? Some believed Shears was the man who assumed McCartney's identity after his rumored death. And this was a sly nod to the switcheroo. According to Rolling Stone, theorists took it a step further when some proposed Shears was an orphan who supposedly won a McCartney doppelganger contest in the past. Which would make him the obvious choice to allegedly replace the musician. There's no concrete documentation of this ever happening. But still, this conspiracy theory may have paved the way for additional celebrity swap and replace theories in pop culture. For example, decades later, rocker Andrew W.K. was accused of being replaced by a man named Steve Mike. Fans also wondered if pop singer Avril Lavigne died and was swapped out with a clone named Melissa. Of course, both Andrew W.K. and Avril Lavigne have denied those notions, but the theories live on as fandom urban legends, which seems to have all started with the Beatles. But even in the 1960s, before social media and the internet, the Paul is dead argument had a lot of plot holes, specifically when it came to Billy Shears. Remember, the Beatles weren't playing themselves in this album. They were pretending to be another band with different members. In the Beatles anthology, John Lennon said Sgt. Pepper was McCartney's alter ego in the fake group. And he said Billy Shears was actually Ringo Starr's character. Lennon claimed the Shears intro at the end of the song was a segue into the next track titled With a Little Help from My Friends, a song primarily sung by Ringo Starr as Shears. Still, Beatles lovers refused to put the theory to bed. Before long, the Paul is Dead conspiracy became a front-page news story. And now Paul McCartney himself had no choice but to respond. Up next, the real Paul McCartney stands up. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Whether you're making a delicious family meal or a post-workout snack, 
choose the farm-fresh taste of Eggland's best eggs. Only Eggland's best hens are fed their proprietary all-vegetarian feed. That's what makes their eggs more nutritious. With 10 times more vitamin E, 25% less saturated fat, and six times more vitamin D compared to ordinary eggs. Eggland's best. Better taste, better nutrition, better eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com to learn more. Now back to the story. In mid-1967, Beatles fans thought they'd found secret messages hidden in the Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band album, especially ones that supported their theory Paul McCartney had allegedly died and been replaced with a doppelganger. According to Time magazine, the track A Day in the Life contained a suspicious lyric describing a man in a car accident. The rest of the verse talked about how crowds knew the man's face, but weren't sure if he was who he claimed to be. However, in the Beatles anthology, Lennon and McCartney said they wrote the song about articles they saw in the UK tabloid, the Daily Mail. One piece in particular happened to be about a car wreck in England. Even so, some Beatles lovers paid close attention to the album's cover. The record sleeve showed the band dressed in colorful military uniforms surrounded by a collage of faces. In front of the crowd was a drum displaying the album's title. Underneath, the words, The Beatles, were spelled out on the ground in flowers. The fans said it looked like a funeral, presumably for the allegedly dead Paul McCartney. Apparently, some fans found another clue when they held the sleeve up to a mirror. They said suddenly the lonely hearts wording in the drum set appeared as another phrase when seen backwards. It read, 11-9, he die. To some Beatles enthusiasts, this was further proof Paul McCartney had allegedly died a year earlier on November 9th, 1966. It's unclear if any of the band members addressed these rumors at the time. Although years later, in the Beatles anthology, John and Ringo denied putting any hidden messages on the album. But in the next few years, the Beatles released more albums, such as The White Album, Magical Mystery Tour, and Abbey Road. And much like Sgt. Pepper, fans played the records forward and backwards to look for secret messages. And they claimed to find plenty of them. From the Magical Mystery Tour album in 1967, John Lennon's song, Strawberry Fields Forever, contains a much-debated lyric. As the song faded out, there was a garbled, low voice at the end. It's hard to understand what Lennon was saying when the song played at regular speed. But according to Rolling Stone, some Beatles fans slowed down the song and heard Lennon sing the words, I Buried Paul. However, in an interview with British journalist Paul Gambaccini, McCartney denied Lennon ever saying this. McCartney said Lennon was actually saying the words, cranberry sauce. McCartney also told the reporter, quote, that's John's humor. John would say something totally out of sync, like cranberry sauce. 
Next, the White Album in 1968 contained a song called Glass Onion. In the track, Lennon wrote lyrics that referred to the Beatles' past hits. There were references to older singles like Strawberry Fields Forever and I Am the Walrus. In the second verse of Glass Onion, Lennon said he had a clue for listeners. Then, in another cryptic message, he sang that Paul was the walrus. Now, this was odd, sure, but it seemed like just another random lyric referring to the old tune. Yet, Beatles theorists took it a step further, suggesting it was a message from Lennon that it was his way of saying he knew about the McCartney fan theory and was hinting it was true. At this point, the Beatles as a group hadn't publicly addressed the McCartney conspiracy or what they thought about it, but Lennon denied this lyric was a clue for anything. Years later, in an interview with Playboy journalist David Sheff, Lennon called it a throwaway line he only included to confuse people. Lennon said it could have been the Fox Terrier's Paul. It's just a bit of poetry. It was just thrown in like that. Then in September 1969, one of the Beatles' most popular albums to date hit the shelves. It was called Abbey Road, and fans were going wild over the album's cover. The now-famous record sleeve showed the band walking along a London crosswalk. However, according to Rolling Stone, some fans felt their costumes signaled, once again, a funeral. Lennon wore all white, which fans equated to a priest. Star donned all black as the supposed pallbearer. Meanwhile, Harrison was dressed in denim, so fans labeled him the gravedigger. Finally, McCartney walked along the road barefoot, which they claimed was meant to signal his supposed death, because it's common in places like England to bury someone without shoes. But the Abbey Road cover required some logical leaps to be true. And just as they did with the others, the Beatles denied it was any sort of hidden message. In his interview with journalist Paul Gambaccini, McCartney just said it was a hot London day. He didn't feel like wearing shoes for the Abbey Road photo shoot. That was it. Fans continued questioning things, even as the Beatles were on the verge of breaking up for good. For the Fab Four, life was moving on. McCartney married a photographer named Linda Eastman. The couple retreated to McCartney's farm in Campbelltown, Scotland, to get away from the limelight. His new focus was starting a family with his wife. But the Paul is dead conspiracy was no longer a whisper in superfan circles. Now, it was about to become a front page headline. Around the time of Abbey Road's release, 19-year-old Drake University student Tim Harper heard the Paul doppelganger rumor on the Iowa campus. Harper wasn't a big Beatles lover. He was just a college journalist hungry for a scoop for a student newspaper, The Times Delphic. But according to author Kevin Courier's book, Artificial Paradise, Harper had a good reason for chasing the story. He said a lot of us, because of Vietnam and the so-called establishment, 
were ready, willing, and able to believe just about any sort of conspiracy. So Harper wrote a piece titled, Is Beatle Paul McCartney Dead? In it, he detailed all the songs and album fan theories we just talked about. Almost immediately, his article caught the attention of mainstream media. Three years after the rumor initially started, the story got picked up by radio stations around the country and other student newspapers. Even non-fans legitimately wondered, was Paul McCartney dead? In his interview with Gambaccini, Paul McCartney claimed someone from his PR office called him and he said, quote, Look, Paul, you're dead. And I said, oh, I don't agree with that. McCartney decided not to act on it because he thought it would be good publicity for the band. And he was right. In October, a month after Harper's article, the McCartney death rumor made international news. According to the Columbia Journalism Review, ABC and NBC News both broadcasted stories about the theory. One radio station blamed Lennon for creating the Paul is Dead rumor, chalking it up to the band's current discord. And suddenly, media outlets inundated the Beatles' PR officer with questions about McCartney's living status. As funny as it sounds, McCartney had to issue a statement to the world. He told the newswire United Press International, quote, I am alive and well. Lennon and Starr also denied these accusations vehemently. Lennon actually called a Detroit radio show to deny any involvement in it. On air, he said, it's the most stupid rumor I've ever heard. But during all of this, McCartney himself said very little, aside from his confirmation of life. For some people, his quiet nature only made them wonder if the rumor had some air of truth. Life magazine reporters and a photographer named Terence Spencer descended on his Scotland farm, trying to get a glimpse of the beetle. They even knocked on his front door to confront him and see if he was still alive. At the time, McCartney and his wife were caring for their newborn daughter, Mary. Likely feeling protective over his family, McCartney wanted them to leave. It was all getting out of control. So he filled a bucket with water, opened the door, and threw it onto the reporters. Then he swung his fist at them. Spencer captured several photos of the good-natured beetle trying to punch the journalists. But the singer realized if those images were released, he'd have a PR disaster on his hands. So he made a deal with Spencer and the reporters. If they gave him the incriminating role of film, he and his family would pose for a photo they could use. He'd even offer a lengthy statement about the rumors. The Life reporters accepted the offer. A few weeks later, on November 7, 1969, the magazine published a posed photo of McCartney and his family on the cover. The headline read, Paul is still with us. Inside the issue, Life let McCartney debunk the rumors in a lengthy response. He wrote, quote, Perhaps the rumor started because I haven't been much in the press lately. I have done enough press for a lifetime and I don't have anything to say these days. 
I am happy to be with my family. The people who are making up these rumors should look to themselves more. After that, the narrative stalled out. Occasionally, conspiracy theorists spoke about the Paula's dead rumor, but not with the fervor they once did. In their book, Rumor and Gossip, The Social Psychology of Hearsay, Rosnow and Fine considered many possibilities for the rise and fall of the theory. Perhaps the Beatles arranged the hoax to see if their fans were paying attention, or maybe it was part of a wider conspiracy on the practicality of replacing public figures with doubles. At the end of it, the professors determined the speculation likely endured for one main reason. It was entertaining. Fans had fun looking for clues and sharing them with the Beatles community. While they had a good time, you can't deny this kind of rumor had fans going to the extreme. And unfortunately, it was only the beginning. Fandom was becoming bigger than the artists themselves. So much so that it led to the end of the Beatles as they knew it. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We are here on Mondays and Wednesdays with all new episodes. Until next time, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from ParCast, executive produced by Max Cutler. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production and quality control by Lisa Marie Gallegos. Ryan O'Leary-Jones is our supervising editor, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Mallory Cara, edited by Georgia Hampton and Lori Marinelli, Fact-checked by Haley Milliken, researched by Brian Petrus and Chelsea Wood, produced by Joshua Kern, with sound design by Brian Golub. Our hosts are Carter Roy and me, Molly Brandenburg. Mm -hmm.